Did you know that racial segregation in the United States began in the North in the 1840s and 1850s when segregation laws were first introduced? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about the African-American experience with historian Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore African-American activism and the movements that challenge the inequities of race and class with award-winning author and scholar Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly. But first, a trivia question. What was the first major educational institution in the United States to have an all-black faculty? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly on the show today. Dr. Kelly is an award-winning author, historian, and scholar of the African-American experience. A dedicated public historian, Kelly works to amplify the histories of black people, chronicling the everyday impact of their activism. Kelly is currently the Joel R. Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the incoming director of the Center for the Study of the American South, the first black woman to serve in that role in the center's 30-year history. Kelly is the author of two books that trace the protests that toppled segregation and the people and movements that challenged the inequities of race and class. Right to Ride, Streetcar Boycotts and the African-American Citizenship, and Black Folk, the Roots of the Black Working Class. Active inside the Academy and out, Kelly has produced and hosted her own podcast and has been a guest on shows such as CNN Tonight with Don Lemon and MSNBC's All In. She has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Root, The Griot, Ebony Salon, and Jet Magazine. Welcome to the show, Blair. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. What's the most unique thing about you? Um, I think of myself as a very regular person, so unique is, is, is hard. I think I'm, as an academic, I'm unique in my, my regularness. I call myself regular regular. Uh, so I'm a mom, a wife. I cook a lot. Um, I bake on the holidays. So I think um, that's probably unusual among academics to to be sort of clinging to these other kinds of identities. But those are the things I love to do. You wrote an article in the Washington Post, You Can't Tell U.S. History Without Black History. It's about the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And in the article you state, it tells the stories of Black America the way they should be told, the way I, as a historian, strive to tell them. Not an account of Black people fitting into American history, but American history told through the Black experience. Tell us why you felt this was an important piece to write. I was really honored to have the opportunity to come to the Smithsonian um, when it first opened. And so, you know, the chance to be connected, uh, to write about it in the Washington Post was enormous um, and and felt very special. Because I think um, the 
I call it Black Smithsonian. Um, the Black Smithsonian really did something incredible in comparison to a lot of other spaces that I felt, you know, often had Black history as an additive rather than something substantive and central to the American story. And so just moving through its spaces and, you know, moving from enslavement and its earliest origins all the way through a very contemporary celebration as you move through the building was an incredible journey and one that mirrored, as I said, the ways that I like to teach and really gave you those poignant personal moments, but also that longer um, narrative that is so helpful about thinking about the African-American experience. So it's it's just an incredible space and it's been incredible. I had a chance to go there uh, to celebrate Black folk and just to be there in that place, the ways in which people have embraced it um, and made it their own and everyday people, not just fancy academic folks, but um, the, the ownership that so many people have and that, that sense of, of pride in place is incredible. And so I've just loved to see the way it's grown. And I have one of my own students who works there now. So I was like, oh, my God, you know, the pinnacle of of what's possible. What inspired you to write your first book, Right to Ride, Streetcar Boycotts and African-American Citizenship? So uh, Right to Ride grows out of my dissertation work. Um, I was in undergrad and I was working on a project on voting rights and Lonnie Grenier. And I wanted to give uh, more historical depth to thinking about voting rights. So I went back and I studied Reconstruction and then I studied the Civil Rights Movement, but there was this big gap at the turn of the 20th century um, that left me confused. Surely not everybody stopped doing political work during that time period. And so I went to my advisor, uh, Reginald Butler, and he said to me, well, I guess that's the book you need to write. And I thought to myself, well, I can't do that right now, but <laughs> maybe I can get to that at some point in my career. So it, it planted a seed in 20-year-old me to think about that as I moved into my graduate program. And so um, I, I was pleasantly surprised and excited to see that just what I thought might be possible was possible, that there really was a political movement in a time that we thought there was none. And there's been a, a decreasing of that silence around that time period since I wrote Ride to Ride. So it's been exciting to see. And you discuss a phrase called the age of accommodation. Tell us about that and why it was significant. So Booker T. Washington is probably the um, Black leader that people associate with that time period the, the very most. And so he his approach to segregation of, of accommodation and he gives in his famous Atlanta exposition speech is the kind of the, the only thing that most people know about this time period. And so I wanted to both talk about the ways in which he's affecting the time period, but also that he was one leader and there were other people who weren't convinced that he was the only voice or the only viewpoint. And they fought very hard against segregation at the time, particularly around on. Uh, transportation segregation on trains and streetcars. And their advocacy for Black rights in that time period stands in, in stark contrast to what we thought of as just a time dictated by Booker T. Washington's outlook. Um, and so there were people who were accommodating, but then also fighting back um, really rigorously against the onslaught of segregation. And so the complication of that set of assumptions was really what I wanted to, to add to the 
historiography. And your book focuses on three key cities of protest and resistance, New Orleans, Richmond, and Savannah. How did you choose those cities as the focus of your research? So um, they all are physically different cities. Um, Richmond is extremely hilly. So people walking in protest there had to like get through the physicality of walking up big hills uh, to get to work, to get to church, to get to school. Um, in Savannah, it's a small, smaller physical city. It's flat. Um, and so it was probably easier to manage physically. There's a, a bit of, a, of the city that's a, a little bit of a distance. That was the one challenge. But in terms of the city center, um, very walkable. And New Orleans is just very much like New Orleans, you know, complex and messy and bunched up. And the, the lines all intersect on Canal Street in this crazy way. And there's lots of accidents. And so it was just it all gave a different sense of like the physicality of transportation and protest. They all also had um, extant black and white newspapers, some more than one. And so I loved having those voices and those perspectives blended back into those histories. Um, I also had um, streetcar company records for two of those places, which was very helpful in having the, the positionality of the, the companies themselves and their ambivalence in some cases toward the onslaught of segregation. And I also was able to really um, center Black voices and uh, the leadership. Each city had a different kind of Black leader. Um, in Richmond, for example, entrepreneurs were at the forefront of the protests and preachers were working for the streetcar company and quietly you know, uh, taking funds to, to, to sit by and let the things happen and not, not encourage them. Um, in Savannah, it was very different. The, the ministers were at the forefront of organizing things. And in New Orleans, you had union leaders and working class leaders, all different kinds of folks who were at the forefront of, of protests. And so I love the way um, those three cities gave you a sense of the variety um, present in Black life. Your newest book, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, begins with a question. What does it mean to be Black and working class? So how do you answer that question? I started with my family. Um, I was a little bit intimidated when um, the editor brought this question to me. I thought, well, this is not exactly what I do. I'm not traditional, um, traditionally a labor historian. Um, I don't, you know, I hadn't studied unions per se um, in my first book. They were there, but they weren't the center of the story. But then I began to think about my own family history and the ways in which everyday people had experiences as workers that really tell us a lot about uh, the past and what was possible and the journey that my family took from uh, the South um, to the Middle South and, and, and northward was indicative of a lot of the trends and, and things that I wanted to talk about. And I, you know, had been teaching about washerwomen and domestic workers and Pullman porters and postal workers um, throughout my career. And so I was like, well, this this is something you do know. It's just a different frame. And so I became excited about what might be possible by using this new frame. Um, and applying the skills I already had and my love of oral history and, and my family stories and my love of digging in the, in the archives to figure out uh, these puzzles. And so um, it, it, was, it became a really great opportunity for me to do something new and to voice something new. Why do you feel it was an important book for you specifically to write? I think 
for me, I am so interested in Black humanity. Um, I always tell my students that our goal should be to, to sit on the shoulder of our historical actors and to be able to look around the world that they inhabit and tell a story from their point of view as much as we can. I mean, there's always limitations, but what can we know? What can we trace? What does their network look like? What does their community look like? What is their outlook that's unique? And so for me, writing this story, writing um, from a place of that that was deeply human was has been a goal of mine. And so often, if you ask people about what their favorite history book is, they they tell you a book by a journalist uh, who can write beautifully and really render um, the American story through their voice. And so I just felt like, well, historians have to get in that game too. Um, there's a certain set of skills that I have as a researcher and a teacher and a thinker over time that I want to bring to bear. And so making these stories accessible and beautiful and compelling um, really was what I wanted to do next. And so it was, it was a great fit. And you specifically write about your great-grandfather solicitor and your grandmother Brunel. Tell us about them and how you were impacted by their stories. So solicitor, my great-grandfather, was a, a sharecropper in Georgia, and he was cheated out of the value of the crop year after year. One year he finally told was told by the landholder that he owed money back um, after turning over his crops um, for the few provisions that he had bought during the year. And he knew that that wasn't right. Um, he knew the math was off, but he had no way of fighting back. And so he packed up his children and his wife in the middle of the night and, and, and fled. My mother had told that story to me many, many times. She was a big storyteller. Um, and she would tell me a story multiple times. And I would be like, mommy, I know the story already. And she would just keep going and say, well, anyway. And so I, it's a story I heard many times from her. I heard it from my grandfather. I heard it from my grandmother. Um, and it was a foundational story for my family. So it, it's it's how I thought about the, the working class journey um, in this time period. And so I wanted to begin with him. My grandmother Brunel is a um, you know a, a woman who was really formal to me as a young person, really played a big part in raising me. And I thought I knew her really well, but after her death, my mother began to tell me that you know she didn't just have the job that I knew of at the Philadelphia Navy Yard that she had worked as a domestic. And then over time, I figured out that she had been a household employee for probably close to a decade, and really digging into the archives. Uh, to find her and trace her in this particular way was an incredible journey. And to, to know the real struggles that she had, and she was had a high school education. She was extremely proud of it. It was rare for Black women to have access to high school education in most cities and most places. You really had to go through something to, to get to a Black high school. And she, she did, and she accomplished that under great duress. And then when she moves to Philadelphia, she can't get a white collar job at all. She can only work in household labor as she had done before she even moved out of North Carolina. And so really the the poignancy of that story and the struggles that she had, it helped me put together the stories my mother had told me in part over time and then to really flesh out th this larger dynamic of Black women who were generationally disappointed by the lack of opportunity and migrate during this time period that we think of as the great liberatory time period for for women, you know, this is the this is Rosie Riveter's age, 
um, but helped me to realize that Rosie the River had a black maid, that the her children were watched by black women, that her household groceries were brought in by black women, her 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 house kept tidy by them in order for her to be able to go to work. And so the American story of, of working women is, is incomplete without that layer um, and remembering that that layer is there. And what's up next for you? What projects are you currently working on? I think I have too many projects that I'm currently working on. Um, I'm trying to complete a coffee table book on Juneteenth and Emancipation Days. Any second now, I'll be done with that. <laughs> um, I'm also um, thinking about writing a, a basically a follow-up to um, Black folk and thinking that Black folk was probably my, my grandfather's generation, uh, my grandparents' generational story, and then thinking more about my parents' generational story, uh, the generation that experienced um, civil rights and integration and then began their working lives, you know, as those changes were, were rocking the country and what was possible and what fell short uh, for their generation. So there were things that I pitched as part of Black Folk that I realized if I wrote into the book would be would make it unreadable and like a doorstop type book that people don't like to read. So um, stopping Black Folk and, and thinking about what's possible for another story is what I, I really want to do next. And, and I have other books that are churning around. I have a completely researched uh, murder case, other other stories that have popped up in the process of writing Black Folk. So I I have too many book ideas. Which is a great problem to have, by the way. I guess more time would also be like clutch. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Oh, I don't know that, you know, I'm very thankful to have this moment to to think about my work and my scholarship and to talk about my writing. You know, so often we are alone in the process of of writing our histories. And so getting to share it and have people finally read it and respond to it. And not only in the scholarly community, but also just in general has been such a gift. And so this is a, a fun and thrilling moment. I'm not an angsty writer. I'm a, I'm a happy writer. And so this is great fun. And where can listeners find out more about you? I have, I'm Prof BLM Kelly, uh, P-R-O-F-B-L-M-K-E-L-L-E-Y on every platform on the dying and sinking Twitter on Instagram, on threads, on everything, just spill. Um, and I also have a website of the same name, profielmkelly.com, where and, I try to keep that updated with what I'm doing. And I will provide a link to your website in the show notes. And it was great to have you on the show, Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. What was the first major educational institution in the southern United States to have an all-black faculty? Tuskegee University was the first major educational institution in the southern United States to have an all-black faculty. It was also the first black college to be designated as a registered National Historic Landmark in 1966, and is the only historically black college or university campus to be designated as a national historic site. We'll end the show with something punny. Why is history like a fruitcake? It's full of dates. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.